You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show on 710-KURV. Here's Sergio. We're opening up your wallet, taking a look at some of your credit cards right now. Now, considering how um, how enormous uh, the numbers are when it comes to use of credit card these days, as people are short on cash and they're swiping the plastic. Now, the number I'm going to share with you is a 2022 number. They said that the average American credit card balance was just shy of 5600 bucks last year, according to data from Experian. And, of course, interest rates super high as well. I think the all-time high was 20.4%, the annual APR. And there's others, and that's an average because, you know, the, uh, there are others that are much higher than that. And on during this week, when we're expecting another interest rate hike, price of money is supposed to be a bit more expensive. Yeah, those credit card rates are going to increase as well. Financial expert Richard Barrington is my guest. Now, is is there a way, uh, Richard, that you something you could recommend yep. to people who are, have been swiping that plastic way too much outside of telling them or bopping them upside the head, stop spending money, <laughs> <laughs> control your expense. Uh, the whole idea is to get rid of this debt before it becomes pricier. I mean, what do you tell folks that you work with to you know do the 180 and get rid of this very expensive debt? Well, you know, I talk about really four different ways of attacking uh, your credit card balance. Um, and, you know, first of all, as you highlighted, um, credit card rates are very high. And so if you look at all your debt, chances are credit card debt is the debt that you should attack first. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing uh, that I'd really suggest, and I think this, that this is very uh, relevant to, to today's labor market, Labor is in strong demand. That means a lot of people are getting raises these days. Um, you can get the most out of that raise if you put it towards paying down debt. You know, let's say you're paying 20% interest on credit card debt. If you get a raise in pay for any given dollar of that raise, you could go spend it and get a dollar's worth of value out of it. Or you could use it to eliminate a dollar of debt, plus you'd be eliminating that 20% you would have had to pay in interest on that debt. So using your raise yep. to pay down debt mm-hmm. is like getting a 20% bigger raise. 10-4. Um, plus, you know, when you do that, when you do that as soon as you get a raise, you don't get used to spending that money. So it's not even like you feel like a cut in your lifestyle. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's one thing. Um, and that goes to using that extra money from a raise to, to – uh, attacking credit card debt goes to another strategy, which is to always try to pay more than the minimum required amount uh, on each credit card bill. And a credit card, uh, sorry, credit Sesame survey found that this is a strategy people with excellent credit follow without fail. In contrast, though, uh, people uh, with, um, uh, Sorry, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau found that more than one-third of cardholders pay less than 10% of their balances each month. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that number, you know, people are making new charges on that card. So it's like they're treading water at best, and they're probably also slowly sinking, you know, um, by paying just 10%. This is exactly what the credit card companies hope you'll do. Mm-hmm. Credit card companies keep the minimum payments low in an attempt to stretch your debt out for as long as possible, 
that way you pay more interest. Yeah, it's a racket. But you can beat them at that game yeah. by paying more than the minimum on every bill. Yeah, and what's so pathetic about this uh, this racket is that you you want a high credit score or you want to finance something, something bigger, home, vehicle, whatever it is. You need that credit score. And unfortunately, you you need that rotating, revolving credit. You You need that line. You need that card in order to, to develop the score. Of course, you're not helping yourself by carrying the balance over and over again and expanding the debt. But as you were mentioning, like I was thinking Dave Ramsey style, uh, the, do the extra job things, get some extra money, throw it all to that, pay down the debt. Imagine how how enjoyable it will be to finally get those extra paychecks after you, you pay down the debt. But I find it so unfair, um, Richard, I find it so unfair that you, know, you close down a credit card and it hurts your credit mm-hmm. score. I mean, you talk, that's, that's part of the racket. I, I, that, it should not be that way, closing down multiple credit cards and, and then getting dinged for it, you know, where you know, your credit score hurts as a result. It should be the opposite, I think. Yeah, I, I, I know, and, and intuitively it, it seems like that because it seems like you're less uh, further extended. You know, the other thing is that, you know, credit utilization is a funny thing. 30% of your credit uh, score depends on your uh, credit utilization ratio, and that's the percentage of your available credit that you have. So let's say you and I both have a $10,000 credit limit. We both have an $8,000 balance. Now, I go to the credit company and say, hey, would you raise my uh, credit limit? And they say yes. So I now have a better credit utilization ratio than you do, even Mm. though we have the same debt. Uh And there's actually more risk that I will go deeper into debt. Um, You know, and it it is interesting, and and it's not a permanent solution. You know, you got to only use this as part of an overall program to pay down debt. But if you're right up against your limits right now, it's well worth asking the credit card company to raise those limits so you lower your ratio. Um, The Federal Reserve Bank of New York found that more than two-thirds of people who applied for a credit limit increase got approved, and yet less than 13% of credit holders had applied for a limit increase over the past 12 months. So at a time when many people are bumping up against their limits, that's kind of a missed opportunity. You know, I just out of obligation, I opened up a card uh, years ago, a few years back, and I, I, I didn't want much on it. I said, okay, give me 1500 bucks." And mm-hmm. before you know it, they, without notice, raised me to three. And then without notice last year, they raised me to six. Just because <laughs> every month I paid off, like whatever, gas, uh, H-E butt, go to the grocery store runner, I'd pay it off immediately. And they, they yeah. raised me. Uh, without without notice, and I, I have I've thought about it, telling telling them I want to call them to tell them to stop, just leave it there. But am I going to mm-hmm. hurt my credit mm-hmm. score if if I tell them to stop raising my credit limit? You know, not if you no, not if you not if you don't carry a balance. I mean, you know, the way you're using a credit card is the smartest way from a consumer standpoint to use it. You're using it as a cash substitute. It yes. like, right? Yeah. You know. You know, so you, you, you don't have to carry cash. You just use the plastic. But then every month you transfer money from your bank to the credit card account and you're all square. Um, that's the best way to do it. And so you don't really have to worry too much about credit utilization ratio because your balance is usually at or near zero. 
Um, and certainly, you know, I wouldn't necessarily ask them to cut the balance, but I would, I would certainly tell them to stop uh, raising it. And by the way, I've had that same experience too. And my, you know, gut was always, look, I have less to lose if I keep the limit, you know, fairly modest. Yeah. Um, but uh, they have more to gain if they raise your limit, especially if they know you're a paying customer. Yeah. Yeah, they, they want you to fall into that trap. Another thing that I discovered uh, when I needed it for an emergency trip, uh, because I pay multiple times a month. Oh, they don't like that. Oh, they want you to pay one mm-hmm. time a month. That's a payback. And I paid multiple times a month. Well, they would decrease my available credit till the end of the month when they would reset everything. And one time I needed uh, to purchase some uh, emergency plane tickets. And I noticed that it was really, really close to the limit. Why is my credit limit so low, despite the fact that I have $6,000 ceiling? You're only giving me this much uh, money. And I call and say, oh, no, I say you're paying multiple payments, and we have to wait to the end of the month to reset everything. Oh, well, of course, I told them. Of course you want me to fall into that trap where I pay interest. No, 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 no. I'll pay cash. Thank you very much. So that's another thing to keep in mind in case you need that credit limit for an emergency. You pay multiple times. They're going to ding you. They're going to keep that uh, available credit lower on you before they reset everything at the end of the month. All right. Final thought, Richard, before I let you go. Yeah. um, Yeah. There is one more thing is to prioritize your credit card payments. Uh, You know, credit card interest rates have changed a lot over the past year. And this would be a good time to take a fresh look, see which one has the highest rate and make sure you pay down that balance first and maybe shy away from using that one so much. Not using it will hurt you too, right? Right? In some cases. Um, well, it will, for you, in a, from a credit score standpoint, yeah, um, yeah um, basically. Or they'll ding you with a fee or something. It'll like from your score, but it'll stop you from building your score. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean, a, you mean a non-usage fee? Yeah. Yeah, that can happen oh, too. These people it's are, kind of dormant. It's a, it's a scam, yeah. I'd say. It's a scam. Thank you, Richard. Financial pro Richard Barrington. This is The Sergio Show. The World Health Organization, a few days back, they came out and reclassified aspartame and said it's a possible carcinogen. Now, let me bring in somebody that's following this news, uh, senior, biotech, senior biotech analyst John Vandermosten is my guest. When the WHO came back a few days ago and said that aspartame might be, and it's possible carcinogen, did that raise any red flags for you, or did it leave things as ambiguous as I read them? Possible carcinogen? That, that doesn't say very much. Right, right. Yeah, that isn't saying much. And, and I think that uh, I think we'd all kind of known over the years that there was some thought that, that the artificial sweeteners might be possible carcinogens. So it wasn't too much of a surprise for me. But I think, you know, that one of the, one of the important takeaways was that only at really high doses or high amounts is it really a, a big risk. I think what they said in the press release is that uh, the 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 kind of the, the the range where it would be a risk is from nine to fourteen cans of of soda a day. So uh. most most drinkers aren't aren't having that much. Most diet coke drinkers aren't really having fourteen cans a day. Yeah. Well, if it's nine to fourteen daily, you know, I can think of some individuals who. Not very intelligently, well, might consume close to that amount on a daily basis instead of consuming water or some some other drink that they should. Believe me, so in order to stay hydrated, uh, they'll they'll buy packs and packs and packs of, for example, Coke Zero or or something like that. And, sure. You know. Well, and there's and there's also other things that can contribute to it. You know, we've got uh, 
there's there's gum, there's uh, sweetener you put in your coffee. Uh, I think, you know, jello and, and syrup or other go. things as well. So, you know, it could add up, you know, not just from the soda. But I think soda is probably the main one that most people. Yeah, and I would say in a market like this, uh, John, um, we're calling you from, from South Texas. I know you're in North Texas, but here in the Valley, uh, you know, this is Diabetesville, USA. So I would imagine somebody who's uh, trying to stay sugar-free, like you said, with jello and other uh, sweet uh, products, uh, foods um, that have no sugar to them, the drinks. I think the intake of aspartame might be rather high for individuals like that. Would those individuals, might those individuals fall into where the WHO says uh, this could be a possible carcinogen in that high amount on a daily basis? I think those people might cross that line. They they could. And, you know, I think uh, it's also important to look at the alternative risk out there, which is, you know, if they're having sugar instead. And there's a lot of risk associated with sugar. You know, it's high in calories. It can lead to obesity. Uh, diabetes, uh, you know, in children, it can cause cavities, I guess in anyone it can cause cavities, uh, but mostly children. So there are a lot of other risks to the alternative. I mean, I think, I think we all kind of know that we're supposed to eat lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, we're always kind of tempted by the, by the sugar. And I think when you look at the risks, the, you know, there, there's risk to each side of it, you know, there's risk to the, to the calorie free sugar, and there's also risk to having sugar itself. Biotech analyst John Vandermosten, my guest, were following up on a report from the World Health Organization. WHO a few days back said that aspartame might be a possible carcinogen. I mean, you got to down a lot of aspartame on a daily basis to even uh, potentially qualify for something like this. You know, I, I saw stevia was mentioned in that report. Did you see that? Uh, that claims to be more of a, a natural sweetener, but I was surprised to see that uh, they also had some aspartame in that stevia sweetener. Yeah, I think, well, you know, I think there are risks to kind of, uh, there, there's been a lot of studies done on artificial sweeteners and whether they really help you lose weight. I think one of the takeaways that, that I got from all of this, you know, the, the, the sampling of studies that I looked at is that sweeteners and things that make food taste better encourage you to eat more so they That's can true. lead to obesity, which has, you know, its own whole other side of the, the risk spectrum there. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, all of these sweeteners have some, sort of risk to them you know maybe it's not cancer uh but it could be something else did anybody comment on how aspartame compares to saccharin remember that the saccharin headlines like yeah 20 some odd years ago and now oh this might be right. a carcinogen all that did anybody can do a comparison i you know i haven't read any of those but i but i do know that you know in my earlier days that that was something that was kind of floating around that saccharin was you know a risk as well and i think you know, I probably felt like it applied maybe to all of them because, you know, they're all chemical compositions, right? And they're not naturally occurring. So, you know, we, all, we don't always know the risks of, of things that are, that are man-made for a very long time. Yeah. As, you know, just drink water, people. Don't get those powdery. <laughs> that's, you know. Yeah, that's the recommendation, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Just drink water with some ice. It tastes really good, especially in a hot summer. All right, John, it's a pleasure meeting you. Thanks for the call. All right. You're welcome. Uh, senior biotech analyst John Vandermosten. This is The Sergio Show.
you're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids. They're running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Senator John Cornyn joining us on the Sergio Show. All right, Senator, let's start with immigration. Uh, the, the subject that, of course, New York media and Washington press, they, somehow they've forgotten about all this. Uh, let me get your thoughts first on a court ruling that just kicked in and kicked to the curb, like in two weeks, kicked to the curb this improvised uh, legalization of illegal immigrants uh, to get everybody in here with an app or maybe visit a, a, a third country before they come to the U.S. to seek asylum, you know, to get in line with millions of other people that are gaming the asylum system. All that has been flushed down the toilet for now, and I guess we're back to square one, which is open border again. Let's start there. Yeah, it's, um, you know, the court decision, of course, I, I don't think it'll be the final word, but um, I agree with you that this so-called legal pathways rule that the Biden administration put in place after Title 42 expired is nothing but a shell game. Um, it's, uh, they are continuing to, to welcome uh, hundreds of thousands of people across the border as asylum seekers without any real chance of getting in front of an immigration judge for years to come. Uh, and then they are paroling, as you know, that's a specialized term, basically just welcoming people into the country who aren't even claiming asylum and saying you can stay here for two years and oh by the way we'll issue a work permit to you as well <laughs> that's just another incentive yeah that's just another incentive for people to keep coming they i you know it, it's just is so confounding to me because they don't seem to understand uh the dynamics that of the border which they would learn if they would actually talk to the experts like yeah. the border patrol um, the other part of me thinks, well, maybe they do understand, and this is what uh, this is their policy. Yes, sir. And uh, that's where that's, I'm at. That's probably more likely. Exactly. That's probably more likely the case. Yes, sir. That's where I'm at, right there. They they know what's going on. That, that's what they want. They want open border, and they want to relabel all illegal immigrants and and people who are potential illegal immigrants. They want to relabel not only migrants but legal entrants uh, for the sake of asylum, and it's, it's just getting line and. Grow roots. You, you know they're you know they're never going to leave, uh, Senator. And it allows it allows the never. Yeah, Biden administration a chance to fudge the numbers. And so instead of saying you know we had one hundred and fifty thousand encounters with illegals, no, we're now down to just under a hundred thousand. You know, it's because all these thousands of people, tens of thousands of them. Some are, and I I saw a report a few days back that we were what bringing in by plane as well, like sign up over there and then we'll, we'll fly you into this country. It is. It's crazy. It's, it's nuts what's taking place under this administration. Well, I keep, I keep asking myself, what's it going to take? And, uh, you know, obviously the, the 7 million migrants who've come across the border, that, that includes the numbers that they don't count, which are the gotaways, which have been roughly 1.5 million. Yeah. These are people evading Border Patrol uh, detention because they're up to no good, and you can use your imagination. 
uh, to tell you what they're likely doing, but that really relates to the second thing, which is the 108,000 Americans who died last year as a result of drugs, most of which are coming across the southwestern border, including 71,000 people dying of fentanyl poison. And then there's the kids, 300,000 children who have been placed with sponsors in the United States, and the Biden administration can't tell you where they are, whether they're going to school, whether they're being neglected, abused, recruited uh, into gangs, or you know, sold for sex. Uh, they can't tell you, and they don't care, apparently. Yeah, and it saddens me that the New York press, the Washington press, th- those who hold the, the light switch are keeping everyone in the dark. There is no emphasis. There is no calls for a national emergency to be declared on those two issues alone. All the 100,000-plus deaths of Americans, all these tens of thousands of missing kids. Lord, help us. I, I pray to the Lord that these kids have not wound up in sex slavery as, you know— w- we're kind of touching on this issue in the movies right now with Sound of Freedom and how easy it is to get these kids into that, uh, into, into that filth, into that darkness. And, and uh, America's asleep at the switch because no one's being told uh, of these heinous crimes. Uh, I wanted to get um, uh, your thoughts real quick uh, before I let you go on another issue you're working on in, in D.C., at least something that's moving forward. Uh, try to grease the skids a bit for international trade and those bridges get approval for it international trade. So what's the latest on that? I know you and Senator Cruz are working on this. Yeah, we're, we're working with uh, Henry Cuellar and, and uh, all of the border delegation uh, uh, together. This is not a partisan issue, obviously. Uh, trade is uh, bi-national trade with Mexico uh, creates uh, millions of jobs here across the United States. I think, you know, every time I hear somebody say the solution to the border is to seal the border, it makes me cringe. Because I want to ask them, do you recognize that uh, you know Mexico is either the number one or number two trading partner in the United States, and how much our country depends on that binational trade? Same for for Mexico too, I, and they obviously don't understand uh, when they say that we need to seal the border. But obviously, you can you can have legitimate trade and, and travel, um, and not condone the the, the mass uh, the, the humanitarian crisis and the, uh, the public safety crisis that we're seeing at the border now. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, those uh, bridge permits are really important, and uh, we'll continue to work with the Texas delegation to make sure that legitimate uh, trade and, and travel are uh, how, made easier, not harder. Yeah. How far along is that legislation? Do you think eventually it will pass? Well, it's, as you know, nothing moves very quickly up here. It's hard for me to give you a timeline, but we are, we're pushing it as hard as we can, and uh, I appreciate Senator Cruz uh, taking the lead on that. That's something we work, we're working on together. Does, it has friends in the on the U.S. House side. I would mention the Texas delegation. You mentioned Henry. Uh, the Texas delegation would be leading the charge for this uh, to try to speed up these permits. That's right. Okay. That's exactly right. Thank you, Senator Senator John Cornyn, our guest. This is the Sergio Show.
your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day and special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, good morning, guys. Well, let's now enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Join us online, amigo. We've reconnected. Huh? We moved the studio. We're in mission. And the text tell me, all these nerds tell me, hey, Sergio, we reconnected again on KURV.com. Listen live. And on Radio Padami, download the free app. So tell me what's going on. If you hear something funky or whatever, I'd like to know. That way I tell the nerd. Sergio at KURV.com. Sergio at KURV.com. Well, just a few moments back in case you missed it. And see, that's the blessing of of Radio Parami, our free app. You can go back and take in previous interviews. We had Border Patrol in studio. Agent Pequeño was in the studio telling us of this big recruitment effort. Border Patrol, they need 3,000 Border Patrol agents. I know they're Well, I suspect. Yeah, I wouldn't be betting money that they'll be filling all those 3,000 positions open at Border Patrol. But I hope they make a dent. They have recruitment events all over the country. We also have a pilot shortage in this country, and I appreciate uh, our next guest making some time to speak with us. Patrick Orenson, my guest. He's a career pilot, and I bring him on because in the news, lawmakers in D.C., uh, one of those little stories that was buried in the news, they were working to raise the retirement age for pilots, commercial pilots, up to 67. Okay, that's fine. But, Pat, that's my first question to you. Why 67? Why not 70 or 75? Some of these pilots are fit. They're very healthy. And they're sharper than some of those churrasqueria knives that they use to cut the meat at some of these fine restaurants. These dudes are super sharp. Why not 70 or 75? I think that would help with the retirement issue among pilots and in, in, in the commercial system. What do you think? Well, it certainly would. Um it's pretty recent that um, they raised the retirement age from 60 to 65. So it used to be 60. Yeah. That was the re- mandatory retirement age. So I think what they're doing is they're kind of taking baby steps. You know, as, as people age, um, people are a lot healthier than they used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that if, you know, you push to 70, I think you're starting to push um, maybe a little bit too fast. Uh, and I don't know that, um, you know, the FAA is – is comfortable with, um, you know, raising the mandatory retirement age, um, t- say, 10 years within a, you know, a relatively short time span, and they don't really have the data to support, um, you know, is that is that a smart thing to do? Yeah. Um, so I think that the two years is, is, is really just kind of a Band-Aid um, to, you know, to try and fix this, this huge pilot shortage that, that we have. But it is, it's just, it is that, it, it's a Band-Aid. Um, I think they could, you know, raise it to 70 and that still only be, you know, a, a Band-Aid. Yeah, if if the, if a pilot were to meet a minimum required standard uh, of, of physical and mental acu- acuity standards, I don't see why that individual should be forced to retire. If, it, if the, the maximum age is going from 65 to 67, 
24 months is not enough to make up. I'm, see, I'm going back to my notes here. They say that in our aviation industry, and I don't know how many, uh, uh, the following, I don't know how many are pilots, but they say that we are short roughly 32,000 commercial pilots and mechanics and air traffic control. I would imagine that the majority of this would be commercial pilots. 32,000 in 24 months, you're not going to get the flight experience the number of hours necessary, the ratings necessary for all the different aircraft necessary to eventually make it into that commercial airline cockpit. They need at least, I think, 70 minimum or maximum age or maybe 75 as long as you physically and mentally you could you know, demonstrate that you still got it. And I, and I tend to agree with you. Um, they, they certainly do need to do something, but I think it's really on the front end that we really need to concentrate on this, if we keep kicking the can down the road by increasing the, the mandatory retirement age, um, we're not going to fix this problem. You know, the Boeing report came out and said we need 602,000 new pilots over the next 20 years. Um, that's a that's a huge huge number. Um, in 2021, we made the most airline transport pilots in one year um, that we've ever made um, as a country, and that was 9,000 pilots. So that's a deficit of 21,000 pilots per year. Um, so that's a, that's a huge number. And, you know, simply by increasing the, the mandatory retirement age, whether that be 67 or 70, um, it's, it's not going to fix the problem. What's going to fix the problem is, is attracting more people to the profession and, and really tearing down a lot of the barriers to becoming a commercial pilot. Um, the biggest mm. barrier being, being money. Um, there's no longer a, a four-year degree required to be an airline pilot. My organization, Thrust Flight um, in Dallas, um, trains people from um, no experience at all in an airplane to um, to them being ready to step into the right seat of a of a of a jet, and that's less than a two year process. So it doesn't um, take four years, six years to get to the point that you can fly one of these things. Um, but it is an expensive proposition. You know, it's a hundred thousand dollars to to go from what we call zero to hero. Um, you know, to the point that they're ready to to make it into a cockpit of a, of an airliner. Um, so I think making this available to more people is what's really going to solve this problem. Former airline pilot Patrick Aronson and owner of Thrust Flight in the Dallas area, training new pilots, my guess right now, talking about a, a shortage in the, in the airline industry, uh, 32,000 commercial pilots and mechanics and air traffic controllers short. And is the, Pipeline still the best pipeline still the military from what you see, Pat or no not at, no not at all the, okay. the the military's training a very small fraction of of pilots which is which really contributes to um, to this issue even more the military pilots um, that have been trained by the military are staying in longer um, you know the military's really trying to hang on to those people um, so it's a very very small percentage of people that are that are being trained by the military now. Here in McKellen, I know that the school district started up a little like uh, like of the many different trades that they teach that will not be moving to college. I know they have like a little flight school program, I think, with McCurry Aviation. Correct me if I'm wrong. You guys are tuning out there. But I know it's McKellen that's doing a little flight school training program. I think we need more independent school districts and even junior colleges to fire up some flight schools. But I know the students might be thinking this. With artificial intelligence, with autopilots really, really good these days, and computers advancing in their capacity to even take off and land planes, 
why should somebody go down this career path if perhaps all these pilot gigs might be taken over by computers? Do you see that happening somewhere down the road? We, we already see it starting to happen. There are autonomous aircraft flying around being tested um, as we speak. So it, it is happening. It is coming. Um, the technology, uh, the systems in these aircraft are so advanced. A pilot's really not necessary in a, a lot of the, these situations. Um, it being necessary and having public acceptance, though, are two different things. <laughs> Um, I think ultimately we'll get there. I know I wouldn't want to get on one of those planes. Not right now. Not right now. Uh, I feel more comfortable if it was like an autopilot, super duper computer that I know if it get if the plane gets struck by lightning and all the electrical systems go off, including the computer resetting, I would feel more comfortable if like Uber style, like in an autonomous vehicle, we'd have like a pilot sitting there. Oh, okay, it's time for me to grab the controls and wait for everything to reset, something like that, then I would feel a lot more comfortable. So I think even in the future there will be, we still will need someone competent uh, to fly that plane on board, uh, but just let the computer systems do the majority of the work. That, that's that's where I see things headed. I, I tend to agree. I think it it's going to be a long time, if ever, that you'll see a pilotless aircraft right. with passengers on board. Yeah. On the military side, that's fine. Use it on the military, but yeah, commercial flights, yeah, I don't think that's going to sell with the public, not right now. Patrick, again, tell folks where to find you for your flight school uh, training from from A to Z. Get all that training to get some new commercial pilots out there. They can find us at thrustflight.com or on our YouTube channel at Thrustflight. There it is, thrustflight.com, thrustflight.com. Thank you, Patrick. We'll keep in touch. This is the Sergio Show. There was so much talk of a recession in our country month after month after month. Uh, yeah, we had a slowdown in GDP, a couple of reporting periods, but that came and went, and we still see strong sales nationwide. Uh, we see the price of fuel stabilizing. Looks like the market responded and tried to provide more supply. And as far as job creation, still strong. In fact, we still have job openings all over the place. Christina Schuler, a financial strategist, Joining me, where is this recession that we were promised a long time ago, Chris? Well, I'm right there with you. You know, I think we have job markets that are too strong. Consumers are still spending. Um, and as far as what we can see, it's not really there just yet. Uh, unfortunately, though, it does take some time to really see if a recession is there. It's kind of not, it's more hindsight, I guess, if you will. Yeah. Look, I, I'm, not, I'm not talking down the economy. I don't want a recession. I'm a, I want people to be able to have a job and and pay their bills. And one good report I, I noticed is, is wages that are outpacing inflation now, which is good because uh, people need to be able to afford all the groceries and, and fuel that, that's out there. But I'm looking at 2024, and you know how it is, Christina. Every four years, it seems that all the uncertainty on the presidential election, some folks start, they stop tapping the brakes and, and stop spending as much and and investment goes down a little bit. Are you still expecting that historical cycle to take place in 2024? In my opinion, I would say that we could certainly expect that for 2024. I think if you look at it as well, um, so many people had stimulus money. They got raises. We took advantage of low rates, things like that. It's just going to take some time for those naturally to wear off, which I think will put us into 2024. But that election certainly uh, helps paint that picture of a prettier economy 
uh, just ahead of an election, but we're still going to feel the effects. I think it's going to yeah, be. Folks who have money in the market will probably say, hey, I definitely feel the, the recession there. My portfolio is still about 20, 25 or 30 percent down compared to several years back. What, what are you telling those folks? Well, I would say hang tight because overall the market year-to-date is up about 18%, a little bit more just kind of depending on what you follow. Um, so we have actually seen a pretty good recovery year-to-date uh, with more expected. But, again, it's anyone's uh, prediction at that point. Would you credit the Biden administration for this growth and this persistence, or is this just evidence of of a market that come hell or high water, they struggle, they will fight to make a dollar, try to stay in the black? Yeah, I don't know that I can give any particular uh, presidential uh, party a a pat on the back for it. I think we're just becoming more and more resilient as Americans. I think we've been through rate hikes and bank failures and things like that, and we're just not um, feeling those effects as hard as they thought we were. I just I think we're getting stronger as a nation. As a financial strategist, uh, Christina Schuler, my guest. As a financial strategist, Christina, where's the safe money right now? I mean, we might. We might see a change in administration, a change in, in energy emphasis. You know how so much money is, is in, in the energy market. Uh, is electric vehicles, green energy, is that still a, a safe investment? Or should investors start looking more at traditional fuels that are still in demand, especially when it comes to the cleaner fuels like uh, liquefied natural gas? Sure. Well, right now we're seeing tech as far as AI, artificial intelligence, software, chip makers, things like that are doing really well for us in the market. So I would say any cash that you don't need in the next five years, I would invest it in stocks and just let those ride for the long term. But cash that you do need, put those aside in things like money markets, CDs, uh, high yield savings accounts that are actually paying high interest right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah those, will, those will likely be around for a while, right? Safe to say, uh, probably the next four or five years. I, I don't see the crazy low interest rates that we enjoyed for so long. I don't see that coming back anytime soon. Do you? No, I think those are just going to take some time. I don't know that we'll get to that low rate, uh, maybe even ever again. Who knows? But yeah. I would say it's going to take some time to even get us it would, close to that. Point. Yeah, it would need to be a very strong slowdown, an impressive slowdown to force uh, the Fed to make money that cheap again. And and, and that slowdown, we, I, we still... Don't see that. Just final thought. Absolutely. No, I 100% agree. I don't think we're going to see that. It's just going to take some time, um, if ever, at that point. You know, that I think what we've seen historically low is kind of there. And if we took advantage of it, great. But I don't know if we're going to get to that point. It will certainly take, uh, take several years to get there. Thank you for your time, Chris. With international ownership, financial strategist Christina Schuler. This is The Sergio Show. Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. And we mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news on News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have a In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com.
You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. So in, in defense news, I see this article saying that the Senate is pushing the Army to develop some neural sensors to track soldier stress, soldier fatigue, you know, get, get some of that telemetry back to commanders. Gene Valentino is host of Grassroots Truthcast podcast, my guest at the moment. Gene, do you know how this neural wearable sensor technology, how is it different from stuff that we all, we know already exists? You know how like NASA will put all these little pegs and things on on all this uh, telemetry stuff on an astronaut and, and check the heart rate and check oxygen level, all that stuff. How is this new stuff different from what they're already using in the field? Well, thanks for having me on, Sergio. You know, Lloyd Acton, 1887, one of his famous lines was, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, given the opportunity, government seems to abuse power from time to time, and I hate to make any current uh, political references because you're asking me about the science here. Yeah. But um, the real question, ha- it has to do with when government has this power over the physical body of data. Um, this isn't the first time in history. I mean, do you remember the early, the Oppenheimer movies out? And it shows people in black and white sitting on the beach, military military people uh, with blindfolds over their eyes, thinking that would be enough protection to witness a nuclear uh, atomic bomb going off um, 100 miles away. Uh-huh. You, you know, we've, we've, got, we've got, there is a place for government to step up and intervene to prevent a greater wrong from occurring with such artificial intelligence falling into the hands of the wrong person. Oof. So, oh my uh, goodness. and more recent, pardon me. Yeah. I could, falling into the wrong hands. I didn't, I didn't even consider this telemetry, all this data on the current, a uh, physical condition uh, of a soldier going, you know, Going, Aaron, going to the Chinese yeah. communists or the Russians or, or in, in real time uh, battle, uh, you know, situations. Well, that's true. I mean, I don't mind it if it's used correctly, but there was a uh, China's doing it already. This is what drives me nuts. China is abusing human beings within their own country now by putting sensors, monitors, um, uh, and uh, things into the body. Uh, to affect the physical body and the mind of individuals. Controlling behavior, they're already doing it, and it's obscene. And we, we're in this beautiful nation where we're worried about rights and liberties and freedoms, we are cautious about that. Now, do I think we should go forward with it and study it? Absolutely. But there must be, and C-SPAN 3 had a great interview with uh, some college professors one from the University of Montreal, and, and a few others coming before the, a Senate committee, uh, Senator uh, Richard Blumenthal as chairman and Josh Hawley from Missouri. These two senators were one of a, a select dozen that were investigating AI recently. And they came up with four factors that government can focus on in the regulation of AI, the harms and the risks. Mm-hmm. Four now, categories, real quick. Okay, if go I ahead. have time, yeah, no, go ahead. Tell, tell me the four real categories. Quick. Yeah. First is access. We've got to have government start by restricting 
access, not only to us and private entrepreneurs, but within government itself uh, to ensure uh, uh, safe, safety. The second one is alignment, meaning ensuring the AI systems will act in keeping with our values and our norms. A third regulation that needs to be in place is a control over the scope of power. This raw intellectual data you were referring to with the military, with the sensors on military uh, individuals, uh, this depends on the level and the sophistication of the algorithms and the scales of the computer resources, meaning how far is the intelligence going to go in, in self-learning and accelerating the speed of learning? We've got to get a, a handle on that. Uh, will it be possible, as many have said, for the computer to be, become smarter than you and me intellectually? And finally, the scope of action, the potential for harm is an AI system that can directly affect or indi indirectly affect human actions uh, or through the Internet would be yeah. an indirect way. You know how we could just... So if we get... Yeah, I was thinking, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Gene, but yeah, I got to go, but I was thinking one way to go around all that would be instead of the Senate pushing the Army to develop neural sensors for this AI-based wearable sensor technology. Well, I'm thinking like rice grain size monitors that are injected into our soldiers. And, well, you know, the military, that's the, that's the practice field. And sadly, our soldiers are guinea pigs in all these experiences. But one way to... I think yeah, the, it's yeah, historically true. Yeah, I think the Senate should be concentrating on making soldier robots, you know, instead of keep our people at home and send the robots out there to go fight those wars. <laughs> Gene, thank you. We'll look for you online. Grassroots Truthcast podcast, Gene Valentino. Thank you, Gene. This is The Sergio Show.